You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein. Today's episode, Reach for the Top. After the horrible business of the Great Flood, man's relationship with God had changed. Where once there was disinterest, a sort of you-go-your-way-will-go-ours attitude, there was now distrust. The generations after Noah did not know when their time might come to be drowned. They woke up in the morning, and in their bones they felt like they were being hunted. They felt the way an ant might feel just before being stepped on. They remembered that Noah had said the people of the earth were evil, that God had to get rid of them and start all over, that God had made some kind of mistake, either in creating them in the first place or in later killing them. They couldn't remember exactly which. After the flood, God had given man the gift of the rainbow. With this, he had intended to quell their fears. It was meant as an everlasting symbol, a promise that this kind of thing would never happen again. Back then, there was no TV or radio, and when a rainbow came along, it was the closest you got to a drive-in. So the tendency was to just enjoy. But despite its flash, when people looked upon the rainbow, rather than feeling reassured, they felt a bit like God was trying to dupe them, like he was saying, let's forget about all this nasty genocide business and just enjoy the pretty colors. Man did not take God at his word, and it was this lack of trust that Mibzer played on. Mibzer was the youngest son of a family of butchers who worked in Babel. I had a dream, Mibzer said to his neighbors. And in this dream, a new rain came, and it made the old rain look like a drizzle. This was a rain with drops the size of mutton chops. For Mibzer, if it wasn't a prophetic dream, it was excruciating pains in the groin. Anything so long as he had something to yak about. Yakking was what came natural to him. It was this talent that Mibzer believed would lead him to bigger and better things, better things than simply delivering meat at the butcher shop. And so he stood outside the shop, and as people walked by, Mibzer yakked. I see underwater animals in my dreams at night, Mibzer cried. How can you drown an animal? How can an animal be called evil? A bull that gores a man to death, can he be called a bad bull? He is merely obeying his instinct. The murderers, the adulterers, the layabouts, and the idolaters, them I could see being killed. But the monkeys? The koala bears? They haunt my dreams, the animals. I have a very sensitive soul. My skin is sensitive, too. I apply ointments of aloe a half a dozen times a day, and still I have boils the size of bees. He saw that of all the subjects he orated upon, his boils, his groin, that his talk of the flood made the greatest impression, and so he took to talking about it in colorful language. Have you ever seen a tiger underwater, turning and scratching, its spine twisting about like a bullwhip? A tiger, even as he struggles for his last breath, will attempt to eat a tuna swimming by, because that is his instinct. But man has a higher calling. Man has things like compassion and kindness. We can only hope that from way up there, the Almighty can see these qualities, and not mistake us for wicked.
flood debate and speculation was popular in those days. People were still trying to make sense of the whole thing. It was Mibzar's belief that had Noah better articulated his conversations with God, he could have made people better understand the perils of their ways, and thus could have saved them. And so, Mibzar believed, the flood was largely due to Noah's incompetence as a public speaker. I have spoken with God, Mibzar imagined Noah saying, and he hath commanded me to build an ark. It shall be such and such cubits long, and such and such cubits high, and blah 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 blah. People were probably falling asleep by the time Noah was even done talking, Mibzer surmised. No, there had to have been a classier way to go about the whole thing, a way to grab people's attention. Mibzer would have opened with a joke. Do you have any idea what it's like talking to God? He would have asked in a manner that was warm and conversational. You think you have a problem speaking in front of a crowd? Try addressing the creator of the universe. Build an ark? You got it. Tell me to climb to the top of a palm tree and belly flop to the ground and I'd do it. Scared? Let's just say I could taste my own kidneys in the back of my throat. You have to build empathy, thought Mibzer. You have to come out saying, I know this sounds nuts. Believe me, I do. Otherwise, you turn people off. People want a little song and dance. It was with his powers as a public speaker at his command that Mibzer undertook what he decided would be his true calling. He would pitch the people of Babel the idea of a great tower, a tower that, in the event of another flood, mankind could flee to. Climbing its top echelons would spare them from the waters below. And if a flood never came, no problem. The tower would simply exist as an everlasting monument to his love of man and his desire to protect. He would oversee its construction and call the structure the Tower of Mibzer. When he first waved over the crowd passing outside the front of his family's butcher shop, Mibzer knew he would need a strong opening line. Do you want to go out like suckers? he asked, mounting a crate of dried meats. Rainbows as symbols of mercy are one thing, but what I'm proposing is a security system. Is this some new advertising campaign for cutlets? asked a soft-headed roofer named Emil as he peered into the butcher shop window. This has nothing to do with meat, screamed Mibzer. I'm talking about the future of the human race. Look, continued Mibzer, growing calm. I would not even presume to know what the Almighty is thinking. That would be preposterous. What could we possibly ever know of what He is thinking? We do not know a thing, and yet we have imaginations. It is the way the fat one in the sky constructed us, and so we imagine. And I will tell you this, it is my imagining that on the day the man upstairs drowned the whole world, he could not have been feeling very good about himself. It just isn't the action of a very self-actualized almighty. Mibzer went on to explain his idea for the tower, and as he spoke, more and more people crowded around. And as they crowded, he became emboldened, explaining to them his idea about the tower. He spoke of it through metaphor, saying the tower was not so much a prayer to God as it was a prayer to man himself. It was a celebration of their humanness. Mibzer offered them the world's first insurance policy, something that would help them sleep better at night. And for Mibzer, it made him feel like a hero, 
It gave him the sense of importance and majesty that he had been after his whole life. The people of Babel were smitten with the idea of a tower, and they set to work on it with great vigor and sense of purpose. One shift worked all through the morning, and another worked through the night. On the day Mibzer had to stand on his tiptoes to reach the blossoming tower's top, he really felt like he was getting somewhere. He stood at the side and watched the workers as they toiled, and when their pace slackened, he would throw a few inspirational words their way. To get them pumped, he would tell them that the tower's shade alone would provide a spectacular mid-afternoon siesta getaway. In the months that followed, whenever it started to rain, everyone would scramble up the tower, laughing like schoolchildren. We, they would yell, whizzing up the steps. They knew that whoever got the highest had the best chance of surviving the flood, so there was a fair bit of good-natured jostling and elbowing of the ribs. As the tower speedily grew taller, it began to be seen in nearby towns. Curious neighboring villagers traveled to Babel to check out what was going on, and once Mibzer explained it all to them, good-naturedly slapping their backs all the while, they immigrated to Babel to work on the tower and take their place in history. And the higher it got, the further news of the tower spread, and news was spreading far, for now the tower almost poked straight into the clouds. At night, when Mibzer dreamt, it was no longer terrible images of the flood that he saw, but it was of himself, ascending his tower. For no matter how many worked on it, and no matter how he spoke of it in the language of shared destiny, he could not help thinking of it as his, his child, that grew a bit each day. At the very top of the tower, Mibzer would step right onto the carpet of heaven. I really love what you've done with the place, he'd say to God. Even in his dreams, even when standing before the creator of the universe, Mibzer knew to open with a joke. The dream was always the same. Just as he was about to touch the hem of the Almighty's majestic robe, he would wake up, a pleased smile illuminating his face. These were exciting times, and as the tower grew, they only got more exciting. There did not seem to be any good reason to stop. Everyone was goal, and that goal, which had begun as a mere escape ladder, now had become something else, something that was less easy to define. It had to do with questing after the infinite. It had to do with being more than just a workaday human. As the men toiled, Mibzer watched over them like a proud architect. Constantly making speeches had become exhausting work, and so he started to wear a whistle around his neck which he blew into to make his wishes known. It was on one particularly glorious day of fraternal labor that Mibzar, watching from the ground near the tower, noticed something was not right. Whereas usually he could hear the harmonious sound of men happily working together, cries of, Pass me that bucket of mortar, friend, and Throw me a pickaxe, my bosom. Now all he could hear were sounds that were garbled, nonsensical. What's more, the jumble coming from the men's mouths sounded panicked, terrified even. With his whistle, he summoned one of his foremen, who immediately ran over. Mibzer looked at him quizzically. Il arrive quelque chose de bizarre, said the foreman. Mibzer was made angry at the man's gobbledygook. Seeing three men hauling rocks on their backs, he blew his whistle at them. They dropped their loads and trotted over. 
Mibzer looked at them and cocked his eyebrows. Que pasa? Que raro? Que esta saliendo de mi boca? said the first man. Haka nie shangdong tiang niao yao, said the second. Sento come hao mangiato il fungo magico, said the third. In his wrath, Mibzer squeezed the whistle around his neck. Then he spoke. Ilwe uye octe ormal ne? Upon hearing the strange sounds escaping his lips, he covered his mouth as though having emitted a long series of burps. He tried again. Otwe ive elhe is happening hey, he cried. For a long while, none of the men dared speak. And then finally, Mibzer broke the silence. Looking into the heavens, he said in a very quiet voice, Otge, uye inwe. And as he stared up at the tower, the noonday wind blew through the whistle around his neck, in gusts that sounded like gentle laughter. In the days to come, with no one able to understand one another, work on the tower ground to a halt. And despite the tremendous enthusiasm with which the workers had toiled, they had little actual experience in the area of construction, and so most of the tower very quickly crumbled away. Afterwards, for Mibzer, there were years of great mental anguish. But eventually, he decided to accept the tower's fate. And in its one remaining floor, the ground floor, he decided to open the first language school. Mibzer was the kind of teacher who always kept the students way past the end of class, continuing to yak away about whatever pleased him. This will be this will be fine. Okay. Um. So, how long did it take you to read the entire encyclopedia? It took me a, about a year and a half, and uh, I was reading uh, at least six hours a day every day. So, uh, it was uh, not an easy venture. But uh, I, I read everywhere. I read on the, uh, you know, in my on my couch and on the Stairmaster and in the subway, the New York subway. You would just carry down an entire volume with you? Exactly. So, uh, and they're pretty, they're four pounds each, so I actually did build up some upper arm strength, so it wasn't all just building my mind, it was also physical labor. It was uh, 33,000 pages, uh, and that is uh, 32 volumes and 44 million words. Uh, and I actually uh, stacked the volumes up on the floor, and it reached uh, about four foot two. So uh, it was uh, it was past my nipples. I think I call it in the book a Danny DeVito of knowledge. So you wrote a book about your experience reading the encyclopedia? I did. I wrote a book called The Know-It-All, One Man's Humble Quest to Become the Smartest Person in the World. Uh, and the book is sort of a... Uh, a journal of my year climbing this intellectual Everest. 
And 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 do you feel like, you know, in your own humble opinion, like perhaps you have become the smartest person in the world in doing this? <laughs> I don't think I'm that deluded. Uh, I uh, I think I I'm smarter than I was, which I don't know if that's saying a lot. I do feel I I filled in a lot of a lot of gaps. I mean, I still have gaps in my knowledge, but before, you know, you could drive a truck through them. Now, maybe it's sort of a moped. Well, what are some of the, um, like, some of the most surprising and sort of beautiful things that you learned during the course of your reading that still stand out in your mind? Uh, well, one thing that I loved was was just learning about the long and storied history of things that I didn't even know had have this history. Uh, for instance, they had a whole section on canned laughter, which uh, uh, began back in the Greeks with Greek playwrights who would hire their friends to laugh at their comedic plays. Uh, and then I, it reached the height in uh, the 1800s France when French playwrights uh, would hire people to laugh at their at their comedies. But the brilliant part is that the French went in for a differentiation. So they also had hired people to weep at their dramas, mm. and they hired, they had a whole um, uh, occupation of people whose job it was to elbow their neighbor and say, "Hey, this is the good part. Pay attention." Wherever I am, these facts are always bubbling up in my brain, so mm. I know that that they're still in there. Like if I see a cat, mm. I'll think of how the Egyptians made mummies of their cats. But they also made mummies of mice, so the cats would have something to eat in the afterlife, which I think is very considerate. One of the things I thought that was great about the encyclopedia is that it went from the absurd to the profound and, and the trivial to the really uh, important. So they had a section on the philosopher René Descartes where they talked about all of his profound theories of mind and body. And then they'd throw in a fact like uh, that, that he had a fetish for cross-eyed women. Hmm. It was very interesting to read, you know, a, a life summed up in two paragraphs where you had hundreds of lives summed up in two paragraphs, and, and they'd always say how they died. Mm -hmm. And so it was almost like death was ever-present in the encyclopedia. And people died in, in the strangest ways. I read about a guy who died uh, when he had a hot air balloon during a, a fireworks display, and his balloon caught on fire or Jezebel from the Bible who fell out a window and was devoured by dogs. Reading the encyclopedia, reading about all of the developments that people have made, it actually made progress seem more real. Hmm. Just reading the news, you get all the bad news and you get the... Uh, you know, the horrible things that people do, which were certainly in the encyclopedia. But if you look at the grand sweep, I think that our lives are better. Reading facts like that the average life expectancy in 18th century France was 28 years. You know, you, you sort of, I'm 37 now, so you're pretty lucky to be alive. I, I, yeah, like, I mean, has, has, um, has reading the encyclopedia, has it prompted you to look at your own life differently? It's made me, uh, as I say, more optimistic and, and uh, given me sort of a... Oh, you're breaking off a little bit. Oh, sorry. How am I now? Uh, still not great. Oh, are, yeah, I can't hear you. Are you you're, you're on the cordless, right? I still am on the cordless. Maybe you need to switch the channel or something? Hold on, let me try. Okay.
any better? That's better. Look at me telling the smartest man in the world how to get better reception. <laughs> See, I didn't learn a thing. Uh, I mean, do you, do you find that your wife looks at you differently? Uh, well, my wife, you know, she's sort of uh, learned to to deal with me. Uh, you know, if uh, we just had a kid, so if I start talking about uh, the the origin of the word diaper, which is actually an architectural term, which means uh, a, a diamond on the wall. If I if I start rambling on about that, she sort of shoots me down and is like, you know, I don't care about the etymology, just change the damn diaper. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to stump you. All okay. right, all right. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Oh, this is this is a twofold question. What is the capital of Bhutan, and am I pronouncing Bhutan correctly? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Uh, well, I will say I have two answers to that for you. Mm. Number one, my favorite dodge is to point out that uh, according to the brain section of the encyclopedia, mm -hmm. that we lose uh, fifty thousand brain cells per day after the age of twenty. So I'm guessing that that answer was probably somewhere in my uh, in the brain cells I lost yesterday. And then dodge number two is uh, that uh, I may not know the answer to that, but I always know something related. So I can tell you, for instance, that the uh, smallest capital in the world, population-wise, is St. George on uh, Granada, which has uh, 1,800 people. How many moons uh, does Jupiter have? Jupiter? Uh, I know that Io is one of them. Does that count? I'll give you I'll give you half a point for that. <laughs> I'm going to guess that it's uh, nine. Does it have nine moons? Sixty. Sixty? Mm. Wow. So I'm failing, basically. Well, no, here. Let, let, let's give you another one. Uh, when did George V reign as king of the U.K.? That's a good one. Well, here's one thing about George the Third mm. is that he ended every sentence with the phrase "what, what, what." He had a, like a verbal tick. That's something. You didn't really read the encyclopedia, did you? <laughs> I did. I just remember the, uh, you know, idiosyncratic facts. I mean, I've probably forgotten 96% of what was in the encyclopedia, but just having 4% of the encyclopedia is uh, is, is still a, a tremendous amount. Uh, you can't know everything uh, in the world. I mean, that was one of the experiences reading the encyclopedia, is just realizing the quantity of information that's out there. You, you know, everyone knows that there's an ocean of information. But just trying to drink that ocean cup by cup, it really sinks in. You're listening to Joshua Carpatti's answering machine message.
Joshua can't take your call right now, but please leave a message after the beep. This message was written by Joshua Carpati and produced by Joshua Carpati. You know, honestly, I, I don't even remember why I called you now. You, you have the woman who does the credits on my radio program on, on your answering machine. Could, could you call me back, please, and, um, and, and it, just explain this to me? C- call me back. Okay, bye. Hello. Hello. Yeah, what, what, what was that? What was what? Where did you get a hold of the woman who introduces my show? Who, Bernice? Bernice? Are you telling me that you don't even know the name of, of the woman who does your credits? Uh, she's just, no, I, 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 no, I you didn't. Think one of those, do you think it's one of those random human voice generators? No, I just figured that, you know, it's, it's I don't know, the CBC has people who do this sort of thing. You know what? It's all about serving you, isn't it? It's all about who's on top. All right, why, why in the world would you have her leave your outgoing message? What is to be accomplished by that? It's classy. I wanted a little class. She's got a, a wonderful, modulated voice, harmonious, clear, well-spoken. And, and I wanted to have that kind of an atmosphere on my outgoing message. It's completely inappropriate. Yeah, why is it inappropriate? I just wanted, it, you know, if anything, you could take it as a compliment that, that I think that the, uh, the beginning and end of your show, particularly when you're not speaking, is pretty nice. Thank you. That's, that's really sweet. I'm having a very hard time understanding this. She, you, you, so you just called up. You just called up a woman that you don't know, and you and you asked her to leave this message on your answering machine. Didn't you find this odd? No. the The thing about it is this: that Bernice and I have a bond, right? The bond is that we both suffered under the yoke of your oppression. You can't expect us not to make connections with each other, you know, just because we know that uh, you know El Jefe is going to have an aneurysm because of it. What did you just call it? El Jefe? Yeah, you know, the chief. El Tirante. How, how, did, how did you manage this in the first place? Well, what exactly did you tell her? Uh, nothing too complex. I just told her that, you know, a little, a little certain someone uh, really, you know, it would mean a lot to him. And, and, and that's it. Who would it mean a lot to? I, 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 you know, my kid. My kid Joshua. That's That's... That's what I told her, and, and, you know, he'd been having a really rough time, as you know, in, in second grade, and he'd been left behind, um, and, uh, and yeah, I don't know, his spirits were a bit down, and this would cheer him up. He's a big fan of the credit lady. You lied to her about having a child. You know when you, can, you tell an untruth in the service of truth? You know, yes, technically, I don't have a kid. Technically, he didn't fail. Te- technically, no, no, technically, it's not technically. technically. You don't. You don't. Oh, John. Everything they're saying in the chat rooms about you is true. And I defend you. I always put in a line about how you're actually a decent guy when you're not flipping out. So now that you have this answering, uh, this outgoing answering machine message, now what? Now I sit back and I, let, I watch the messages roll in. You're listening to Joshua Carpati's answering machine message. Joshua can't take your call right now, but please leave a message after the beep. Hi, this is a message for Joshua Carpati. 
This is Club Video Box, and I wanted to let you know that your copies of Smoking the Bandit and Smoking the Bandit Part 2 are three months overdue. So please return them as soon as possible. Thank you. Hey, Josh. It's um, it's Jonathan. Um, I, I still got that bunion on my foot, and I was wondering if I, if you're going to be around, if I could pass by and pick up some of your uh, ointment. Bye bye. The voices you heard on Wiretap today were Joshua Carpati, Bernice Warren, Starley Kine, Billy Mavreas, and A.J. Jacobs, author of The Know-It-All. Wiretap is written and performed by Jonathan Goldstein and produced by Jonathan Goldstein with Sarah Gilbert and Carolyn Warren. You can reach us through our website at cbc.ca slash wiretap.